Welcome to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Bank-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, December 6th. 2018 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Christina Klimas and Philip Driscoll present Treating a Diverse Population, an Evidence-Based Toolkit to Provide Empathetic and Collaborative Rehabilitation Care to the Melting Pot. Ms. Klimas is an Occupational Therapy Clinical Specialist, and Mr. Driscoll is the Chief Executive Officer for the Saddlebrook, New Jersey campus. Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in. I'm Phil Driscoll. I'm the CEO of the Kessler Saddlebrook Campus, and I'm also chairman of the Ethics Committee. And it's sort of under that umbrella that we sort of took a look and tackled the how do we respond to that, you know, increasingly culturally diverse population to be successful in achieving, you know, optimal outcomes for our patients. So neither one of us has any conflicts of interest. Um, So our objectives here, we're going to start off with trying to you know, sort of talk a little bit about healthcare disparities um, and give you some understanding about some of the interventions that some tools, a lot of our work tonight is going to be trying to be practical, stuff that you can steal and take home about how to be better capable to deal with those populations. You know, how do we go about providing a patient-centered and culturally competent care um, and really tips on how to encourage and engage and empower your staff and your coworkers to embrace this challenge. So I'm going to start off with sort of a view of, say, 50,000 feet, sort of taking a look at the whole issue of healthcare disparities and why, you know, sort of why we're even here tonight and tomorrow. Let's start off with this quote. Your zip code shouldn't determine how long you live, but it does. And it's a pretty powerful statement and talks about, um, sort of lends itself to why we're here. Um, And there have been a lot of studies and there are continuing to be studies out there that are identifying the problem of, you know, diversity and disparity, you know, where care and access to care and the quality of the care and the outcomes of care are unequal. Um, Whether it's the Institute for Diversity of Health Management, uh, which was commissioned by the American Health Association's Health Research and Education Trust, HRET, um, 
And this was participated in the study that I'm going to talk about right now, done in 2015, you know, was coordinated with, you know, hospitals across the country. So, you know, when they take a look at, you know, one measure of diversity, and what you're going to discover is not the only measure of diversity is, um, you know, minority representation. Um, and what you see here is that the, in many cases, the board members in the executive leadership don't necessarily match the patients that are being served by these organizations. The managers get a little closer and seem to be trending in the right direction. But right off the bat, you see a little disconnect between sort of the, you know, for, you know, for lack of a better term, the suits overseeing the care and perhaps the patients receiving the care. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how, you know, here at Kessler, we look to assess that. Um, and we also discovered that, you know, this is a relatively new and sort of rapidly changing area for all of us and many of our institutions. Um, you know, only about, this is only a few years ago, 40% of the hospitals had guidelines for cultural linguistic competency. Um, less than 45% of the hospitals, you know, even used demographic data to help understand the care and the delivery in, of their services in areas where there may be a disparity. You know, less than 45% of the hospitals even had a goal to, you know, tackle disparities um, based upon their patient characteristics. Um, and about, a, you know, a third of the hospitals had information on the staff who had been trained in culturally, linguistic, and appropriate care. Um, you know, the, you know if, if your benchmark is zero, one-third is pretty good, but it seems there's a lot of room for growth there. Um, another study came out that was done in 2016, performed by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ. Um, and the findings overall say that minorities receive lower quality and inequitable care. Um, and some of the findings were that poorer households and minorities have less access to health care. Um, minorities do not have a usual place of health care, you know, and that's leading to, a, you know, a breakdown in preventative screenings and wellness. Um, and 14% of all adults without private insurance or non-white adults did not receive health care as quick as they would have liked to or never received it at all. So again, you're beginning to see, you know, this, the, 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 the disparity of, you know, particularly in those populations of the care that's being delivered. Now, you know, when we talk about, you know, diversity, we're not just talking about minorities. Um, there's, you know, in part of it, you know, I, I listened to a, I was in a seminar today for talking about, you know, disparities, you know, in the delivery of health care to the LGBTQ community. Um, and this, you know, there was a survey back in 2013, and this, this information was pretty current and it hasn't changed. Um, you know, 15% of adults who identified them as gay or lesbian reported failing to obtain needed medical care due to cost. 16% of adults identified themselves as gay or lesbian reported being uninsured. Um, 
you know, 57% of adult women identifying themselves as lesbian or bisexual report re receiving mammograms within the last two years. And 39% of all transgender people face some type of harassment or discrimination when seeking routine health care. And in the seminar they, they talked about today, you know, they gave a little example of a transgender person for who, and the staff repeatedly used, you know, the, the sexual, you know, in terms of a pronoun, the sexual orientation that she, you know, had at birth. Um, and it was like a slap in the, a slap in the face every time they did it. It was like, it, it, it was, it, it, and it, what it does is that, that they, they pull back from care because that, it's, it's insulting. Um, and we're going to talk about that. So really what, you know, what the toolkit really tackles, and I think part of the reason for this disparity, um, and we are, I think we can be effective working with our coworkers to address it, it's, it's implicit, it's a problem of implicit bias. Um, and that we have preconceived notions of normal that reflect our own normal, what, what's normal for us. So, you know, if you're, you know, a younger therapist, you might have an idea of what an old person's all about. May not, the old person may not share that particular view. You know, non-white patients, you know, you create biases. Non-English speaking patients or people from other countries, you know, IV drug users, people from a lower socioeconomic class, you know, the, the whole issue of sexual identity, sexual orientation. You know, we come in there with a presumption that part of our job and part of the tools that Christine is gonna talk about is to break down that bias so that you can walk a mile in your patient's shoes. And, you know, with that implicit bias on the part of, you know, the, the caregiver, what happens is when you, when that implicit bias acts, acts out, you know, your patients rebel. I talked about the patient who, you know, resented the, the wrong pronoun being used repeatedly, almost willfully by her, her caregivers. So she pulled away in poor compliance with medical recommendations because you're pushing them away with your bias, poor compliance with home exercise programs, the medication management issues, less follow-up visits, um, and biased clinicians are rated as less warm, attentive, and friendly in part because we're not listening. And part of it may not even be not listening. We don't even understand. We don't know what we don't know. So, you know, as a leader, you know, I work, you know, trying to say, what do we do about that at Kessler? How do we address this issue? Where is our implicit bias? Where are we culturally uneducated? What can we do as an organization to improve ourselves? So... You know, we started off with, you know, going back to that first slide, we want to say, who exactly is our customer? So we did um, an assessment of our communities 
to try to figure out what was the, you know, the ethnic breakdown, that was the only information we had available to us through the census, of the communities that we served. And then we took a look at what, what's the ethnic breakdown or the cultural breakdown of the patients that we see to try to figure out if the patients that we see reflect the community at large that we serve. Um, and then we did the same type of thing and say, let's take a look at our employees to see is the, the profile of our employee base reflective of the patients that we treat that is reflective of the communities that we serve. And, you know, in some cases, we found ourselves doing pretty well. Um, in other cases, there were, there were in, some, in some areas, there were pockets that we struggled with. And, you know, that set us as a task of how do you go about recruiting, developing, and tackling that community that is underserved? Um, in the demographics, um, you know, could be ethnicity, um, could be, you know, the, looking at the preferred language for healthcare conversations. Um, you know, it's, part of it is religious and cultural. Um, and we have begun to, and Christina will talk about how we do this, begin to try to capture that information so at least we have a baseline of how our patients perceive themselves. Now, we also want, as I said earlier when I talked about, we want to learn how to engage, you know, our employees in this. And in fact, we have a, you know, I know it's probably, it's not very original, a cultural diversity task force at Kessler that is entirely driven by employees who are interested and passionate about the topic. And much of what you're going to learn about this evening was driven by people who had a passionate interest in it. Um, and we start off, one of the things that we do on a regular basis, I don't think we do it annually, but maybe every couple of years, is we poll our staff through an electronic, a survey monkey type of tool to get a sense of what are they seeing out there? What are their needs? Um, you know, we want to, you know, get, you know, and we have, I think we had more than 50% of our, of our employees participate in that survey. And we'll talk a little bit more about the survey later on. Um, and they give us a roadmap of what's working well, and what they need and what they could, what that would help them be better. Um, you know, one of the questions, you know, we also have an employee engagement survey here. One of the questions we ask is essentially, do you have the tools and equipment to do your job? Do you have the opportunity to do your best? And this poll is a way of helping, you know, art having that articulated back to us to say, we really could use more of this, this, and this. Um, and then that gives, you know, you know, as a leader, that gives me my shopping list, my marching orders to go ahead and do stuff. Um, and these are, you know, a couple of the, the tools that are out there that you can use. Um, 
You know, one is a tool for assessing cultural competence training, TACT. It's a checklist regarding culturally competent care. Um, and the other is advancing effective communication, cultural competence, and patient-family-centered care, a roadmap for hospitals and joint commissions. Um, it's a list of guidelines and areas to address to, it's not so much a staff-driven thing, but it gives you sort of a framework. Because for many of you, you know, this is going to be, you know, depending on how mature your organization is in developing this, it's a heavy lift. And this is a way, it's like a diving board that you can jump off of that gives you a roadmap. So, you know, when we do the annual staff needs assessment, um, you know, we want to, you know, get their, understand their competence in researching differing backgrounds. Um, sort of, do they know where to find information? So if they have a patient who comes on their service who's an Orthodox Jew, do they know what to find out and what to, what to learn about the appropriate way of dealing with that patient? Um, you know, do they know who they can reach out to for help? Um, you know, are they competent? If they have a patient for whom English or their is not their primary language and they don't speak the patient's language, do they, you know, do they feel competent using an interpretation or translating service to communicate with that patient? Um, do they know if they need to give a written material that's in another language? Do they know how to get it, where it is, how to do it? Um, you know, part of it is, you know, do you know? We're asking them: Do you, is there enough materials for patients in the waiting rooms, for example, that is in you know that reflects the community and the languages that we serve? And what about our signage? So, if you're in a you know in a community that is heavily Polish, do you have some Polish signs up? Do you have Polish you know reading materials in your waiting room? And and those are the suggestions we're getting back. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple format. It's a, you know, use the Likert scale and to be, you know, you know, I didn't know that's what it was called, but that's one of those scales, a five point scale where they give you a statement and you either strongly disagree, disagree, you're neutral, agree, strongly agree. So there's, there are statements of, and we'll give you some examples, but there's statements about the, these issues that we just talked about and we get a nice array of, of scores. It's electronic, because it's easier to tabulate. It's anonymous. Um, and, you know, it's, we do have some open-ending, because, you know, part of it is we want to hear from people, can you help us out? What's, what suggestions might you have? Um, you know, and we break it down both from, and, and the questions are slightly different, if you're a clinician taking care of patients versus if you're a non-clinician, if you're support staff, dietary, housekeeping, you know, th their needs for this type of information may be slightly different. Um, and we, you know, it's modifiable, so we can change it. If, we, if somebody comes up and says, boy, it would nice to know about this, let's put that on the survey, we can adapt that. Um, and the purpose is, it's, you know, 
It's to figure out what are we doing well and where can we improve. Um, it's it, to give us a roadmap. We have a, an annual cultural diversity plan with you know, a number of strategic objectives and steps to do it. This gives us ideas to say, hey, that's a great idea. Um, and we can, you know, I said we change the questions, but we keep enough of the questions the same so we can see do the scores change over time? Are we making a difference? Are we moving, are we moving the bar? And, and, you know, as I said earlier, when we find a weakness or an area for improvement, that helps drive the plan. So, you know, this is an example of, you know, a, a Likert question. I have access to language interpretation services such as Sericom or bilingual certified staff interpreters. And, you know, in this particular example, 52% um, said, yeah, I agree. Um, another 26 said, I greatly agree. So we had about, you know, 78% who said, I agree or I really, really agree. But that means that we still had, you know, about a little over 20% that were disagreeing or neutral. So that's a pretty big number. You know, I'd like to say, you know, take, you know, declare victory at 78%. But in school, that's like a C, maybe C plus. You know, like we'd like to be A students. Um, and here are some of the actions that we took that came out of this survey, that came out of suggestions. Um, we created some support and education groups for inpatient family members whose primary language was Spanish. And that was one of the things that we found is that in, in overall in our communities that you know, the Spanish population was over 10%, and we really needed to step up our game there. Um, in our day in waiting rooms, we, you know, we started putting in more information, diverse religions, language, cultures. Um, and again, this, these topics change and overlook, but they, that was a request from um, employees, and, and we've done that. Um, and we have a number of staff who, you know, have been certified in, you know, healthcare translation or medical translation, and we put it on their name badge so that it's an extra reminder of people that this person not only speaks another language, but is trained to do it appropriately. Um, you know, one of the things that we all struggle with, it's, you know, grabbing the nearest person to who speaks, say, Spanish, to translate for a patient, but that person, you know, might be a dietary worker or might be a housekeeper, really isn't trained to handle the nuances of a medical conversation. They're, they're very helpful when somebody has a question about where the cafeteria, what the hours are, sort of general knowledge. You don't need a special license to translate that. But if you're trying to interpret pain or a patient issue, you want somebody who's been trained and certified. Um, we also, you know, developed and, and implemented, you know, we, we are a teaching organization and, you know, we've got students, we've got nursing students, therapy students, medical students, pharmacy students, dietary students. 
So we put together a diversity student survey um, that both the student and the clinical instructor follow um, that's completed both halfway through the training at the end, again, a Likert scale, um, and again, it's part of, we touch on some of the same issues that we talk about with our, with our staff is, you know, as a, as a training, are you being trained in culturally appropriate care? Um, and, and as I said earlier, the key to all of this is to try to break down the implicit bias try to get us out of the silos of our own self-experience um, and get help our employees understand and meet the patients on their terms um, so that it's evidence-based. We're providing evidence-based treatment. Um, and we do a lot of staff training. It's, a, it's, it's not a once and done. It's not something you can put a checklist off. It's got to be a living, organic process. Um, and, you know, part of it is, you know, part of the current evidence, you know, talks about we try to, again, you know, try not to rush things, try not to overemphasize productivity goals. So, you know, we, we don't rush through to do what's easy at the expense of what's right. Um, and again, you know, part of it is, you know, particularly when you're dealing with a individual who has a different outlook on life or a different cultural framework than you do, it's it's hard work. You got to work at making sure you're getting it right. So if it's too fast, you lose that ability to do it right. Um, you know, again, you know, I think that you know we try to and and. You know, our, the, our employees can tell us if we're successful. Try to decrease the the quote unquote overwhelming overwork, um, because the unhappy or disengaged individual is you know not going to be you know be effective, and 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 actually probably may not be invested in taking the extra time to take care of the patients in a culturally appropriate way. So I'm going to kick now over to Christina, and she's going to lead off with, you know, sort of overview a little bit as, you know, the staff view of this and the staff role and how staff engagement and implementation sort of took root at Kessler. Hi. Can everyone hear me in the back? Yeah? Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm so happy to be here tonight, and I will move out of the way for you so that you can see the screen. One thing that we find really helps at Kessler is we have a lot of task forces, and it is made up of not only staff, but leadership and managers. And these are staff from all different walks of life. So what we mean by that is it's not just therapy helping out. It's dietary. It's nursing. It's sometimes maintenance that may be on some of our task forces. And the reason that this is so important is because they're going to see different things. They're going to interact with even the vendors coming into our buildings a little bit differently. And we want to make sure that we're covering all of our bases. Our task forces 
you, you can see a couple examples. We have a cultural diversity task force, which is what we've been talking about for a bit. But we even have staff engagement task forces, and the list goes on and on and on. So there are tons of ways for our staff to be motivated, which is really nice. And it empowers the staff, because they're now realizing that they have a voice, and they can help with some of this problem solving. It's not just starting up at the managerial level and working its way down, which is really important. Our task forces also work together. So an example that's a really nice one is our staff engagement committee does monthly calendars. And each calendar is different for each campus. So here at West Orange, there's one calendar each month. At Saddlebrook, there's another calendar. At Chester, there's another calendar. Our clinics, which span the entire New Jersey area, they have a separate calendar because these events are going to be different given the staff makeup. And these events, a lot of times, are coordinated with other task forces. So the Cultural Diversity Task Force, a lot of times, will ask the Staff Engagement Committee and task forces to add some other events onto the calendar. A really great one was we had a potluck in November. It was bring something from your culture, some type of food, so that we can celebrate the culture that you're from. And that's just one example. And, and there's many other examples. This is an example of the Saddlebrook staff. For, for part of their engagement calendar, they were dressing up and celebrating LGBTQ. And what's nice about these types of employee engagement events is that the patients, the clients, the vendors coming in, they see this and they really enjoy it because they're seeing that the staff is celebrating all different walks of life and we're having fun. The other thing that we've started doing, which has been really, really successful, is a train-to-trainer or a superstar, if you want to call it that. We've found staff that are really good at certain things that we need other staff to become more motivated in doing. So an example is LanguageLine. LanguageLine is an interpretation system. It could be video-based. It can even be phone-based. And we were having some difficulty because we have so many staff members in all different departments. We were having difficulty for them to learn, number one, how to use it. And the second part is it's scary your first time having to pick up that phone and call that phone number. And I can be one to test for that because I was really scared the first time I did it because you've never seen what's really entailed. So we pick staff, primarily a lot of them are speech therapists because they use our interpretation system a lot. And we've picked a lot of staff members that this is what they do all day, that they're really experienced at it. And they are training our other staff members so that these staff members not only have a resource, but they also have a person that they can go to that they know, they have a face, and they can say, I have to make my first call tomorrow. Can you be there and show me what to do? And sometimes that's really powerful. We've also even expanded it a little bit more. What we've been doing is going to different events in all of our campuses and having some of our video-based machines there because that is hard for someone, let's say, in dietary to have to find the machine, number one, and know what to do with it. And they don't always work a day shift where we can train them. So we've put a lot of these machines at some events, sometimes even just near where they would get their meal, and had someone trained there to show them how to use it. And 
just by doing something simple like that, we've gotten some really, really great feedback. And it was free, which is awesome. We really capitalized on certified interpreter trainers as well. This is done by HRET. So if you're looking to start something like this, you can Google HRET, go to their website, and they'll show you how to start this. Really what we're doing is we're screening our staff when they come in day one. Do you speak a second language? And they have to fill out a bilingual screening form. This form is done by HRET. We fax it over the HRET, and then what we do is we make sure that these forms are screened, number one, and they're scored. HRET determines if that person is, number one, able to speak and read and write in English, but also in that second language that they're saying they're competent in. We're looking for competency, basically. The other part of that is that they have to be able to show that they know medical terminology. So it is okay if someone from dietary says, I'm competent. And if they're able to show that they know some medical terminology and that they're competent in that second language, they can then be deemed competent and they go through an entire course. I think it's about six hours to learn how to become an interpreter because there are ethics involved with that and there's a process, so they have to learn that. And once they are deemed competent and they go through that course, what we do is we give them a name tag so that people throughout the building can see who they are. It's also important for our patients and their family members coming through that they see that because they may not know who to go to. And that little name tag will say in the person's second language, I speak whatever, I speak Russian, I speak Spanish. And that's kind of a nice thing to have when someone walks into a building and they speak a second language. What we're finding if you scour the research is that that is really scary for someone speaking primarily a second language, maybe Spanish, maybe Italian, that comes into a hospital setting that's primarily English and they don't know who to speak to because they're, they're not confident in English. So that name tag does give a little bit of a boost of confidence to that person. And we're hoping to find other ways to do that as well. That's just the start. We also post a list that's updated quarterly on our intranet, intranet, and we also post it at each nursing station. So there's really easy access to a lot of these lists. We also try to make sure that all of the resources that we find are accessible. So we have them posted on intranet. There's binders of information. A good example is at one point we came up with communication boards for all different languages so that speech therapy had something to use in the beginning stages of inpatient care. And there was this span of different languages that came from that. And those binders were easily accessible. They were in every department. So someone that needed it could quickly grab it and use it, which is really important. So this is an example of just one of our marketing materials. It's, um, it's actually a sign that we post outside our gyms for privacy, but you can tell that it's in English and in a different language. So we're trying also to make sure that a lot of the postings that we have are in a couple languages because we're finding that it's important. Pe people are looking at it. People are abiding by it. Even our marketing materials, this is um, 
in Spanish for washing hands. Uh, anything that we are coming up with now, we're looking to see, is there a way that we can translate this to make it a little bit easier? And we're using our certified interpreters for this. We're also using Syracom, which is our new system for interpretation and translation. And we bank all of these resources on our intranet so that people can just pull it when they need it. Our task force also does quarterly newsletters. And these newsletters span a variety of different topics. We've done LGBTQ. We've looked at different holidays coming up. We've looked at different cultures. And the list goes on and on and on. And we usually will have tips for someone if they encounter a certain ethnicity and they're really not quite sure what to do. It, it just gives some easy reading and some quick tips for people to use. And we bank these on our intranet as well. This is just an example of what, what one looks like. They're usually about three pages, pretty quick and easy, because what we're finding is we're all strapped for time. So if we can have something that's a resource that's quick and easy to read, people are going to read it. We do a lot of reminders and learning through those newsletters as well. So if we know that we want to let people know a little bit more about Syracom services or interpretation services, we will input that into our newsletters. We also have a page on our intranet, which is really cool. We just started this. It's very easy to use. You can see that's a picture down below, there's four buttons. So no matter what, it's, it's easy. You don't have to worry about it. And each button is pretty easily labeled. You'll find our certified interpreter list on here. We have translated materials for staff. So in a bind, if they need something, they can just click that button and pull up a list of resources and print it out. We also have information on different cultures. And we have tons of links. So we're hoping to build this as we go. Usually, we're updating every quarter or every six months, depending on the information. The other thing that we just started is we do annual trainings. We have an electronic platform, Select University, which is our education platform. We do a lot of electronic training that way. And what we've done to celebrate Diversity Month, which happened in October, we came up with a couple modules for staff to complete. And they were really well received, actually. We had a lot of managers asking to enroll their entire staff in it because they, they wanted to make sure that their staff had this information. And the information we went over is, number one, interpretation and translation, because that's very important. We want everyone to know where to find these resources and how to do it. We don't want someone being fearful of using those systems. The other thing we went over was implicit bias, because that's important to know. It, it, we're finding that's the big cause in healthcare bias and um, disparities. The other thing that we have come up with is how do we accommodate for a lot of these preferences that people are coming through requesting? A good example is on our past medical history forms. A question is, what is your preferred language? We have to document that. 
So we in this module are showing staff, here's where you document this, here's why, this is why this is important. We wanna make sure that everyone reading that medical record knows which language they should be accessing to best communicate with these people. And we are coming up with more and more actually, we have an entire committee just to come up with more modules. We're hoping to have an LGBTQ one that's gonna run for LGBTQ Pride Month, that's in June. And we're also coming up with little short, tiny modules that our staff can look at whenever they need more information. One is going to be sensitivity training and we're looking at a ton of other things. So a couple tips for providing preferred language. One thing that that really does help when you're providing any care to someone is pictures help because sometimes the words can get a little confusing. We're never quite sure sometimes what that person is that we're, we're talking to, what their level of education is. So pictures definitely help. We use our certified interpreters a lot for translating and also interpreting, which is really helpful. Exercise programs should be, we're hoping, that all staff is giving an exercise program in that person's preferred language. Our exercise programs on the computer now do a couple languages, and on the portal, that the page I just showed you, that cultural diversity portal, there are links for staff to use to provide education by diagnosis to family and clients and patients in their preferred language. So we're hoping that no matter what, these people are getting their healthcare education in their preferred language. Just some food for thought. When we're looking at creating inclusive environments, one thing that's something to start thinking about, do you have a space on your paperwork, your intake paperwork for partner, spouse, significant other? just to make it more inviting. Is there a space to designate male, female, transgender? And signage, is it in multiple languages? Is it LGBTQ welcoming? And are you posting non-discrimination forms? We do a lot of community education as well. Our staff do a lot of wellness education. We go to libraries, we go to underprivileged areas, we go to surrounding areas for our hospitals and our clinics and we give education talks on wellness, how to stay fit and cognitively fit, and we also do a lot of free education events. One example is we just had an, an adaptive expo and recreation expo. And we do a lot of community events. It's something to look forward to is interacting with the community that you're in. What we're finding when we start scouring the research is people that do not primarily speak English or in an underserved population, they seek out healthcare when that healthcare comes into their community. So a good example is to go to their local libraries, to go to some of their events and be present. It's a great way to market, it's a great way to be a vendor, sometimes it's free, but what we're finding is these people see the faces, they see that, that they're welcome in some of these healthcare facilities and they start coming. And statistically, that's, that's what's being shown in the research. So if you can find some of those free events, it really does help. 
and we'll leave you with the, the one thing that's really, I think, what we've been talking about this whole hour is of all forms of inequity, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking in human. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. 